Well, good morning. You can be seated. Thanks, Chris. Would you open the Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3. I'm Mike Boyle. I'm the interim associate pastor at Village Church of Bartlett. And I've been there since uh, May or June of 2020. And I'm serving there interim as we look at getting two uh, new pastors that we just uh, had. Uh, Dean Annam, who is our discipleship pastor, joined us uh, two weeks ago. And we're still in the process of looking for an administrative pastor. But one of the privileges I've had uh, serving this capacity is meeting every Monday morning, typically, with Pastor Craig and also with uh, Pastor Michael and Pastor Matt and others, but uh, to really go over the scriptures together. And it's been a real privilege with Craig just to listen to his regular insights and comments and just his preaching over the years that he brings together to that time when we study the Word of God. And the other thing that's enjoyable is his sense of humor, uh, that we can laugh together during that time, too. So as we come to God's word, let me open a word of prayer, okay? Well, Lord, we come to the word of God because it's what you've given us to instruct us by and to direct our lives by. As we look this morning, Lord, we invite your spirit to join us in a way that only he can do, and that's illuminating the word of God, bringing to our attention the things that we need to learn, but bringing also to our attention the things that will renew our minds, those things that will transform our hearts, those things that will make us more like Christ. Lord, each one of us comes today with uh, different circumstances. There's some who come here in the sense of going through difficult days and trials that they just sense a real comfort they need from you, a sense of your love, your care, and the sense that you could touch their lives with your great compassion and care for them. Lord, there's others who are doing a walk with you that somehow they've stepped off the path and their eyes are not set on Jesus and somehow they're walking in their own direction. There's a place your spirit needs to correct them and bring them back in a right relationship with you where their eyes are set on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And in that process, you find your spirit correcting our hearts. And for many, Lord, that's where they're persevering. They're going through life in a normal way. And there's a sense they need encouragement just to keep going on. Somehow that faint-heartedness sets in. Somehow we get tired. Somehow we need a word of encouragement or comfort in the way of how we're going. And your spirit can do that too. So whatever our case may be, whatever our circumstances may be, let your spirit do that work that only it can do today in each of our lives that you transform us to become a more and more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, Susie was, uh, died and went to heaven. And when she got to heaven, she uh, got to the pearly gates. And uh, when she got there, Peter uh, greeted her. And uh, she said, well, Peter, what must I do to come into heaven? He said, well, there's only one thing you have to do, Susie. It's pretty simple, just one thing you have to do. And she said, what's that? He said, you have to spell for me one word. And she said, okay. She said, what is the word? And he said, love. She smiled and said, L. O-V-E. He said, well, welcome in, Susie. You can come into heaven. 
So Susie got into heaven. She's there chatting with Peter. And after a while, Peter noticed that something came up. He was going to have to leave. So when he left, he said, Susie, I'm going to put you in charge of the gate. And for anybody who comes in, just like you, they just have to spell a word, and they're welcomed in. So Susie's standing there at the gate, and she looks down in the distance, and she sees this guy coming down that looks a little familiar. And it was like, no, it can't be. Gets a little closer and said, no, I really think it is. I think it's my husband. Gets a little closer. Sure enough, it's her husband, Tom. And Tom comes all the way up to the pearly gates, and she says, what happened, Tom? He says, well, I was coming home from your funeral. I was in a car accident. I got killed, and I came to heaven. And he said, so I'd like to come into heaven. So Susie looked at him and said, well, Tom, there's only one thing you have to do. And he says, what's that? He says, you have to spell one word. He said, okay, I can do that. What's the word? She said, Czechoslovakia. You know, we have stories about heaven that we tell, jokes that we tell about Peter at the pearly gates. We often think of heaven, we think of little chubby angels that are somehow floating around on clouds. We have all these variety of ways that we talk about heaven and think about heaven, of what it might be. But the question is, do we really know what heaven is really like? We still tor- We tell stories, we laugh, we chat about it. But even as Christians, we come to Revelation, we find that what happens, it seems like all these angels and these people are standing before God the Father and God the Son, and they're just singing all the time. And we start thinking, well, heaven's going to be where we just sing and praise God for eternity. And for many of us, in the back of our minds, which we'd never say publicly, we go, how boring is that? And we start thinking that's what heaven is. But the real question is, what is heaven really like? Not all these things we've talked about. Not these things we've intersect. I mean, there's a reason why we come up with these ideas. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven. And somehow, hmm, he's in heaven. Or when you think of Acts chapter 1, and Jesus Christ is ascended, and he ascends into heaven, And the angels there and the apostles are looking up and the angel says, you know what? He's going to come the same way that he went up to heaven. And so we have this picture of just going up to heaven. God's in heaven. But what is heaven really like? Now to get that picture, we got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Because when we go back to the book of Genesis, we find out what God really created and what the earth was really like and what life was really like back in Genesis. And then we're going to find ourselves walking all the way to the end of Revelation to see what God says heaven really looks like. And we'll begin in Genesis, we'll end in Revelation, and you know it's in the middle, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we get back to Genesis. What we have is God's creation in those first six days. You know, there's the heavens, there's the skies, there's the sun, there's the moon, there's the stars, there's the rivers, there's the animals, there's the trees, and all that takes place. On the sixth day, he creates man and woman and gets done, and God says, it's just not good. God said it was very good. And we have this wonderful creation that takes place, wonderful creation by God, man and woman in the garden, the Garden of Eden, all the wonderful things that are there. And then, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's sin. 
And with that sin, all of a sudden we find there's a curse put on the birth and all that takes place there. But I want you to see something that's very important there. Genesis 3, if you have your Bibles open, verses 17 and uh, through 19. Here's what we read. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. From this perfect world that God created, there's now a curse placed on the earth. That curse on the earth all of a sudden makes it difficult for us to live. It says that all of a sudden we're going to toil, we're going to sweat, and there's going to weeds, and there's going to be thorns. How many of us have ever had a garden? that all of a sudden we decide we're not going to take care of. And when we finally come back and look at it, there is not the tomatoes we thought. There's not the cucumbers we expected, but we do find a lot of those weeds that have overtaken our garden. That's the curse. That is the curse that's been placed on the earth. What's the impact of that curse? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 at verse 18. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Here's what we read. Now, as Paul comes to this, he's giving his interpretation, his understanding of the curse on the earth. If God created this wonderful creation in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, all that was there, and then the curse came on the earth, what does that really mean and what does that really look like? Here's what Paul says in Romans 8. Starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of God's Son. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here's what he's saying. When all of a sudden this curse was placed on the earth, it put a bondage upon the earth. It weighed the earth down in such a way, in a futility of how it would function and work, that the earth's anticipation is that there is a day coming in the future when the sons of God's children will be revealed, that somehow they will be in some glorious form and the earth too will be released from that curse and there's a freedom the earth will have again. Paul's anticipation is somehow this curse on the earth is going to be lifted up off the earth and something will be different again for the earth as we know it. He continues. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. So he says, here's what's happening. In this futility of the earth, it has these groanings, these sufferings, these calamities that take place on a regular basis that are not supposed to happen. And the earth suffers because of that. 
And we all are aware of this. We've watched hurricanes hit our country and the devastation it's done. Living in the Midwest, you may know or have friends who've been confronted by tornadoes that have hit, and all of a sudden it's wiped out communities and cities. Earthquakes that we've watched that destroyed cities and communities, and thousands of people who have died. Tsunamis that have wiped out countries almost with the destruction of water. It's the calamities, the destruction that takes place. It's the earth groaning with all these calamities. This should not be. It's the curse from the fall that may create a futility for the earth, that the earth finds itself groaning for this curse to be lifted. Now, for us to understand this, Paul ties in even with ourselves. He says, we get tired of these bodies. We get tired of the suffering we go through. We get tired of all the tragedy that we have to face. We're tired of illness. We're tired of suffering. We're tired of things going wrong. We wish these bodies could somehow do better than they're doing. And we get tired of the trials we face. We have this groaning in our own systems and bodies that we just want out of here. Interesting. As we're younger, we hear that being taught. But have you ever listened to older saints? Believers in Jesus Christ as they get older. All of a sudden they sort of pass that retirement age, whatever that is. Somehow they're there with their bodies that they find slowly decaying going through issues that they're struggling with, physically dealing with things they don't want to deal with, the loss of their spouse and the grief, the loneliness that they face. And you sit with them, and you talk with the believers, and you hear in them that groaning, that anticipation of wanting to what? Go home to be with the Lord. All of a sudden, they realize the futility of this life, of all that we've pursued and wanted, of all the benefits we could have. But as they get closer to death, they sort of turn upward and look to God, and they're ready to go home because they're tired of the calamity, the struggles, the trials, the curse, the fallen nature our sin, the troubles, and we want to go home. And he says the earth, the earth wants the very same thing. Now he continues. Notice how he continues here. Not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly, yes, as we eagerly wait for the adoptions of sons. He says this, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And it's anticipation. We're waiting for this. We are waiting for this. And I can assure you, when we're young, we're not sure we're really waiting for it. We believe it in our heads. But experientially, we have a lot of life we want to live. As we get older and suffer more, we start realizing the sin nature and the impact on our lives in relationships, 
trials and physically. And there comes a time in our life when God's given us the time to live. That groaning becomes louder. And privately we start praying, Lord, take me home. I'm ready to go. Because we're aware of the curse from the fall and the cost of this fallen nature and this fallen world, and we want to go home. And we groan and wait for the calamity to be over. Now, it's interesting when the Bible starts talking about heaven and how it primarily is spoken of, because it is not usually spoken of as heaven. Let me read you a couple of verses from Isaiah. Here, here's an Old Testament prophet. We'll get to the New Testament quickly, but let me just read these two for you, okay? This is Isaiah the prophet. He starts to talk about heaven. Catch what he says. Now behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. God said he's going to make what? A new heavens and what? A new earth. That somehow when he talks about future eternity, there's not just heaven, there's also earth. Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, and so shall our, your offspring and your name remain. He's got new heavens. He's got a new earth that he says is going to remain along with us. That somehow when God starts talking about heaven, it is not just some spatial thing in the sky that's up there somewhere. He somehow identifies it as the new heavens, but also a new earth is for us in the future. That somehow this original creation with the curse that was upon the earth somehow is going to come down here at the end of eternity and we're going to find there's a new heavens and a new earth that creates eternity that makes up heaven. Turn to 1 Peter with me. I'm sorry, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, because this is going to be Peter who talks about this new heavens and new earth. But he's actually going to talk about us if this curse has been on the earth and we sense this futility, this groaning of all the calamities that's taken place. And God is promising to us there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The question is, how do we get to this new heavens? How do we get to this new earth? What occurs to bring us to that place that seems to be the eternity that God is talking about? And Peter describes it for us. Here's how he describes it. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So get the picture. He said somehow at this time period, when we move towards this place of eternity, that somehow all of a sudden the heavens as we know them are going to be destroyed as we see them and, and understand them. And somehow in the process of that, the earth too is going to be impacted with something that takes place. He continues. 
since all these things is verse uh, 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because which the heavens will set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He says this, there is coming a day when there will be fire that destroys the heavens and the earth. Now, just before this in 2 Peter 3, he's just talked about the flood in the day of Noah. And he talked about how water destroyed the whole earth and everything on the earth. And how God started the earth all over again with Noah and his descendants. God says he's going to do a similar thing now. Just like he destroyed the earth back there with Noah, he's going to destroy the earth one more time. This time not with water, but with fire. And somehow that fire is going to dissolve the earth in some way and the heavens in some way that he's got something to start over again with to move forward. Now some suggest it could be a total destruction of the earth. Others suggest it's the idea that somehow the burning just sort of brings it back to a place that God can renew it from what it is. But God's going to take the earth and somehow he's going to regenerate it, redeem it, in some way to make it habitable again. And somehow he's going to change the heavens in some way. And as he does all this to take the curse off the earth, he's going to bring it forward to something new for us to be aware of. And that's what he tells us he makes in verse 13. Here's what he says. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now that's pretty exciting to read. All this takes place so God can burn the earth and the heavens and when he gets done with that he's redeemed it, renewed it, made it fresh and alive, a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what he produces at the end. That somehow that original creation that we read about in Genesis 1 shows up all the way at the end at the beginning of eternity. That somehow this idea of something being in heaven, all of a sudden we're realizing somehow it's going to be here on earth that is the new heavens and the new earth. Turn to Revelation 21. Because John has a vision of this whole scene as well. He has the same vision of what Paul talked about, this groaning of the earth to see a new day. John has the picture of what Peter describes that somehow this fire is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. But John, John actually goes into heaven, gets a vision of Jesus Christ and who he is, watches history move down through eternity, and we get to chapter 21, he is giving us the final scene. This is heaven. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're waiting for. This is what we should anticipate. Not these little chubby angels we think about. Not people flying out with little wings. Not waiting to hear a bell ring so an angel, an angel gets their new wings. None of that to take place. He describes something entirely different. He describes somehow this earth that we're going to have here that's transformed, renewed, and redeemed. Somehow all that's going to happen here on earth that he describes as heaven for us in the future. 
And John gets the picture and walks us through with what he sees, with the limited language that he has. This is heaven. Here's how he begins. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now, we're going to do a lot of reading here, but it's partly so you get the feel and the flavor of what this is. And here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You get it? The new heaven and new earth comes why? Because the old earth and the old heaven have passed away, but there's something new that God has created. And it's not just heaven. It's not just heaven. It's new heavens that we see above, but a new earth, a new earth that we are on. He describes that new earth. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So now, in this new, on this new earth, we've also got a new Jerusalem, a new city that's going to show up on it. It comes from heaven. It comes from above. Somehow, in what God's been doing, all of a sudden, it comes down and settles on the earth. He continues. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that pass away. So this futility of the earth, the curse on the earth, our fallen nature and the futility that we face, we finally get to this new heaven, and new earth, and the holy city of God comes down and settles on the earth. And God on his throne, with the Lord Jesus on his throne, engages us in a new, intimate fellowship and relationship like we've never had before. We are face to face with God. And as he looks at each and every one of us, he makes sure that he can wipe away every tear that we may have, every broken heart that we have felt, every pain that we have suffered. And he's going to come and wipe away all of that from us so we no longer deal with this fallen nature and this fallen world and this sin that we've dealt with all these years. And this relationship we have with God now where we're here and he's there, that changes too. Where all of a sudden he's here with us. How many times have we wished you'd been a disciple, one of the 12, and wish you could just been there with Jesus? What a great life those guys had. Almost. <laughs> they struggled, didn't they? But as often as we thought that would be good, how many times have you prayed and just wished God would write in the sky, do this, Mike? How many times we wanted God to be there with us? How many times we wish Jesus had just put his arm around us? How many times we wish he'd just comfort us in our sorrow? And they want us to know God the Father, the triune God, will be here with us. Face to face, a new intimacy with God like we've never had before.
that we never really thought we may have. And he identifies this is how intimate it will be in heaven in our relationship with the triune God of wiping away every tear we may have. Oh, he continues. How will this be? How he identifies there's no more mourning, no more crying, no pain. All has passed away. He continues, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, Write this down, but these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Christ talking. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from them the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his her- this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What a wonderful description to be a son or a daughter of God. And he's speaking, he's speaking to each of us in a personal way. He continues, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all are liars, their portion will be in, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. And we learned of that last week, lake of fire and hell. But he continues now. He talks about the new Jerusalem, this holy city that comes down, gives its description starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of, of, of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having, catch this picture, folks, the glory of God. Now listen to all these crystals that are describing. This is John trying to describe in the, only the words he has. He goes, and all the radiance, like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, It had a great high wall with 12 gates, as the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So this city is made of 12 gates, and the 12 tribes are above the 12 gates, and the 12 tribes of Israel are here. He continues. Verse uh, 14, and the wall of the city that that had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb of God. He wants us to know this is a place for the redeemed of God. It is a place for the Old Testament saints. It's a place for the New Testament saints. It's a place for all the saints of God, those who came from the tribes of Israel, those from the foundation of the apostles. They're all gathered here in God's holy city with him. He continues, verse 10, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And the wall was built, catches of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first of jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, 
the 11th jacinth and the 12th amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. What a city. Brilliant as it was, could be. Huge as it can be. God says, the scripture says, here's the city comes down. God to habitate among his people on this new earth. And he continues about this new earth. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on them. For the glory gives light, and its lamp is the, the, tr- the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Here it describes now. There is no temple. Remember in the Old Testament there was a temple in order to do worship. We're now in heaven. There's no temple. There's no activity that has to take place because Lord Jesus Christ is there and there's complete access to him. There's no need for a sun or for a moon. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is so bright and shining. It'll illuminate everything that you can imagine. You can see as clear as you can. But then he also describes some activity going on. All of a sudden, he identifies, you know who's going to be here too? There's going to be some kings that are here, some kings. What do kings do? They reign. What do they reign over? Something they reign over. He's somehow describing there's some activity in heaven that is more than just singing and praising God. Somehow there's some activity that somehow you need kings who reign over something to do something And there's some huge activities going on on this new earth that we have. Because the new earth is made up of more than just the holy city. The holy city will be the center of this earth. But you have the rest of the earth that is new as well. And in all that newness, that somehow there's kings of nations that are needed to carry it out. He continues about this as the nations walk. The kings of the earth bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, the only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So he describes it again and says, here's this wonderful place it's going to be with only believers who are followers of Christ, those who have placed their faith in the Messiah. They will be there. And somehow all the nations will be represented. Somehow activities are taking place all upon this new earth that we're somehow not just sitting at the throne singing hymns and choruses and contemporary Christian music. Somehow there's more going on on the earth that we need kings to reign We'll find out more of people to serve. He continues in verse 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So now we have the tree of life. Remember where the tree of life first showed up? Back in Genesis one. The one thing Adam and Eve were told 
not to eat from. It shows up again all the way in Revelation chapter 1. Now we're also told about this tree that it has fruit. How much fruit? It bears fruit every month with a different fruit. What's that tell me? There is time in heaven. Somehow you're measuring off months, but there's time. Heaven is not a place with no time. Heaven is a place with time that somehow you measure off months to know what fruit will be on the tree of life. He continues, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light for the lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So now he says, there's not only kings who reign. He says these servants who praise him, those of us who are in the new heavens and the new earth, we somehow reign with him, which means there's some activity going on of somehow managing this new heavens and this new earth. Somehow as trees are growing, as plants are there, as many suggest animals may be there as well, all that's going on on this new earth, somebody has to manage and reign over it, and he says that is what his servants are doing. So it's not a place of just praise. It's not just a place of worship. It's a place of reigning and serving and activities. Oh, as we go through all these verses, as we read so many of them, it's just identifying that now there's no longer a curse on the earth and it's gone. The throne of God is there. We are servants who will be serving with him on this new earth. So we realize heaven is this. Heaven is the redeemed heavens, the redeemed earth for the reigning of the triune God and the reigning of his people. That is heaven. Heaven is here on earth, reigning with God on a new heavens and the new earth. Let me summarize a few things to take note of. That means heaven is a place. Two, heaven has time. Three, heaven has a holy city. Three, heaven has a place of activities taking place that we as the redeemed will somehow be participating in reigning and living on this new earth, which is heaven. Heaven is the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the interesting thing is, if all that's true, What does that mean for us? It's interesting, after all this takes place in heaven, in chapter 22 here, we're at the end of the book. John has watched everything take place, worshiping Jesus Christ, all the stuff that's happened in this book. He's just had the final description of heaven. Here it is. It's the new heavens. It's the new earth. A redeemed earth. A transformed earth where God's people will live forever and ever and serve the king in some capacity of reigning on this earth. 
And all that gets done, John is now left there with an angel. And if you drop down to verse 8, here's what we read. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets with those who keep the words of the Lord. Worship God. Think about it, folks. As John watched everything in heaven, he watched the worship of the Lamb, the worship of the creator of all things. He saw all the activity that was going to happen in heaven. And as soon as it's over, John falls down and worships a thing, an angel, a created being. You know what that tells me? That somehow we have a problem in our hearts. That even when we know what the promise of God is for this new heaven and new earth, we have a problem of idolatry. That we somehow want to fall down and worship things, things, things that will be destroyed and have no value. And we will sacrifice for these things and not worship God. I thought about this. In the day that we live, what are some things that we, we, that we somehow get distracted from worshiping God for and become the priorities of our life? We can call them values, but things that drive us, direct us, get all our attention. Ever thought about the fact that we as churches have this desire to do things with excellence? Some of us are perfectionists, and it's, we're always disappointed with everything that is done. There's never anything that is done that when we get done, we don't celebrate. We always talk about what? How we can do it better. And next time, we'll do it better. We'll even critique our sermon today, how we did everything, and our conversation will be not, how good did it go? No, 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 no. I mean, I'm in this too, guys. How can we make it go better next week? Why? Because we're perfectionists. You know what that means? We do not agree with the, fa- the true teaching of the Word of God that we live in a fallen world with fallen people who are imperfect and we should expect, we should expect imperfection. But no, we worship the God of perfection, of excellence, that we, that we are going to create. And that is a God of idolatry. Because the only one who is perfect is God himself. And he somehow accepts the worship of all of us broken people with our fallen natures in the wrong ways we do it. Because he knows our heart is to worship him. And we could be the ones who fall down at the idol of perfectionism and excellence. I think many of us find ourselves falling before the idol of our family and children, of all the sacrifices we make, our whole lives built around this calendar that we have, and every person gets a different color so we can track all their activities of what they do. My work schedule gets this. My social time with the family gets this. Mel's time gets this. Grandkids get this. 
and we build our whole calendar around colors and different things. In fact, we have merged our calendars so I can see all her colors on my calendar too, and it's so pretty to see all that I do. And I got my work calendar, and it has its colors too. So I get green for work, I get blue for me, I get red for Mel. It's like, oh, it's a beautiful calendar, and we're driven, we're driven, we're driven by all the activities that we need to be engaged in with our children and families. If our kids could only do more things, then they'll get accepted into college. They'll get that uh, grant that we want them to. They'll get that scholarship. No, they won't, folks. <laughs> Most of us don't. But all the sacrifices we make for our children, all the things that we do for them, don't misunderstand me. The Bible tells us to love our kids and to raise them. It tells us how to parent. It tells us how to love our wives and how to submit to our husbands. It's all there, folks. But we need to take our time and pause and look at all the sacrifice, all the sacrifice that we make for the idolatry of family, of the idolatry of children, not aware of the brokenness we live in, forgetting the trust we should have in God, that by the grace of God, our kids become the followers of Christ. It's by the grace of God that the Spirit works in their life. By the grace of God, they become those children who walk in the light. Oh, there's a third one I think of our idolatry. After we listen to all this stuff that takes place, it's our sense of recreation or self-indulgence. No, it's just not about my kids. It's just not about my family, my wife, or my spouse. It's not just about my grandkids. It's about me and my own self-indulgence. And start thinking about how we spend time and determine our usage of time. I don't want to do that. I don't have time to do that. No, I want to spend money on myself. No, I can't give to that because I want this. And how we find ourselves given to self-indulgence with our time and our money, and our energy, and things that we do. Just take a look at your calendar. How much is given to ourselves? And the reason we can't sacrifice to serve our Lord Jesus Christ in some new and special way. Look at how we spend our money. That all of a sudden as Thanksgiving comes up, or Christmas, and we talk about giving to others that we don't give. Why? Because we spend so much on ourselves the self-indulgence that we have in our activities, our tongue conduct, the things that we do, the hobbies that we have, those extra things we do, and all of a sudden awareness of our own self-indulgence of what I want, what I need, and how many times I make those choices out of my own selfishness of doing things. There are times in ministry where there are things I do not want to do. My reason? It's not my gift. God just hasn't gifted me to do that. And I can be really specific about one gift that I don't have, but I know there's ministry that needs to take place. And all of a sudden I'll be sitting there, and my wife will just raise a question, doesn't prod me, doesn't push me, just ask a question, which causes me to stop and think, am I being selfish not doing that? 
or am I willing to sacrifice to serve God's people? And oftentimes I pick up the phone, chat with a person, find out when I hang up the phone, it is the best thing I could have done. Took very little time, took no money, but had great impact on the lives of people. I remember as a young pastor, hearing an older pastor say these words to me, Mike, just follow your good intentions. You know, folks, how many times we have good intentions for one another? You hear a brother or sister is really struggling. They've been here at church for a few weeks. You think about them. Actually realize maybe I should give them a call. Maybe I should drop by and see them. And then you know how the conversation goes after that. They probably really don't want to see me. They probably wouldn't want to talk to me. And we talk ourselves out. We talk ourselves out of caring and loving and serving other people. Why? For our own self-indulgence. For our own self-pleasure. For our own self-serving. Because we don't want to sacrifice. One final one that I find, and I speak this to my generation, is the idolatry of retirement. Of how we talk about that. And the wonderful places we can move to. Oh, we have visited friends in the villages. Oh, if you want to find a place to live. Somehow this small community that started out as 10,000 people in Florida, just north of Orlando, has grown to over 100,000 people, all 65 and older. They've got three pools in each of these communities. They have a pool that no children are allowed in. Woohoo! <laughs> You have your own golf cart, and golf courts get priority everywhere in the community. They have golf courses everywhere. I, I couldn't believe this. We come into our friend's place, and we're sitting down there. The, the center of their town, the center of their little town, has a theater 24, not 24 hours a day, but 24 days a week, a theater, a movie theater, just for this group of 10,000 people. Three or four restaurants, barber shops, hair salons, everything you could want all there. You know what's happening? They've got speakers on all the light fixtures. And you sit there and you listen to all the songs we grew up on. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you know you're old. You go in the store today, they're playing the songs you grew up with. That tells you you're old. Because you remember when you were a kid, they played your parents' song. Now, this is horrible music. That's what your kids think now. Who put this music on? It's us baby boomers. Yes. That's our music. We get to listen. That's what's playing down there all the time. I couldn't believe it. It's like wonderful. But so self-serving as we plan our retirement. To serve whom? A concept of retirement that doesn't show up in the Bible. Oh, it shows up with the idea as we get older we can assist younger people. But not to walk away from it. Not to stop serving. But somehow as we get older, we start saying things like, I put in my time. I did it before. You know who needs the greatest help from us? Young couples with young kids. Remember those days? Aren't you glad they're over? That's what grandkids are for. Short period of time. No, I love my grandkids. They get to go home. They don't, you, can just, you, give, you give noisy toys to your kids now, don't you? 
that you wouldn't let your kids have? Those popping machines and all. No, no, just come back to it, the whole idea. They really need our help. And to serve them. Why? They need to get foundations in the scriptures and in the worship of God. And all of a sudden, there's that thing that we have in all our churches. You know what it's called, don't you? It starts with that letter N. Oh, no, we need what? Nursery workers. I'm glad that's you. You know, the whole idea, where does retirement come into play and how do we continue to serve in the church of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying we should all be in the nursery. But I am saying there's not a time as we get older that we get to walk away from God's people and say, it's yours. Because that can be our idol of self-indulgence. You know, as we think through this and understand what heaven is really like, I came across a song recently written, written 2018, by Andrew Peterson. It's called, Is He Worthy? Listen to these words. He, exact, he knows exactly what we're talking about this morning. Here's what he wrote. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He was David's root, and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, how wonderful news to hear that there's a new heaven and a new earth. And to know that this new earth is somehow a renewal of this place that we currently live on. And that you will take the curse and lift it off this earth. That you will remove the sin natures that we have. And that somehow all this will be transformed. And this new heaven and this new earth will be the place, the place that the throne of God is. So that the triune God can reign. And so we as his redeemed people can reign with him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.